You know, there's something deeply wrong with the world in which we live. We've seen it most recently in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, especially in the indiscriminate killing of civilians. We've seen it in school shootings and protests that turn into riots. We've also seen it in more subtle and insidious ways, that sense of restless dislocation that accompanied the pandemic and turned up the volume on so many underlying issues of mental health. I think you probably know the statistics. In the initial months of the pandemic, the number of adults who reported symptoms of anxiety and, and depression tripled. Over the next year, those numbers kept going up with rates now quadruple what they were in 2019. This means that by the end of 2021, one in three American adults showed signs of depression. And those are just the figures for adults. Self-harm and suicide rates among adolescents have continued to rise in recent years. There's something deeply wrong with the world in which we live. But it's not a recent turn of events, is it? It's not a result of the pandemic or a consequence of war. The world has always been marred by violence and marked by tragedy. And this raises all kinds of questions, all kinds of questions about God, about ourselves, the nature of reality, and how we're supposed to live in a world that just feels wrong so much of the time. Well, in the middle of your Bibles, there is a slender and seldom read book called Ecclesiastes that invites us to face the wrongness of the world with our eyes wide open. This is an awkward and uncomfortable book. In some ways, in some ways the author of Ecclesiastes is kind of like the unhinged uncle of the Bible. So he says stuff that's undeniably true but never mentioned in polite company. He's got no filter, no blinders, no hesitation about naming what's wrong. For him, no question is off limits because everything serves to lead us to the truth about who we are and where we live and the God who made us. By taking a brutally honest look at the world, the author invites us to be honest about ourselves, about our struggles, our frustrations, our sorrows, and our grief. He gives us permission to speak truthfully about the world and how we feel about it. Throughout this short season of Lent, we are going to inhabit the world of Ecclesiastes. We're gonna to listen to the, the lament of the author whose sorrow often feels as if it borders on depression. And as we do, we're going to look for God's presence in this troubled world and we're gonna search for meaning, meaning in the midst of our brokenness. But I want to warn you here at the outset, this is going to be uncomfortable. In 1961, a little book on grief was published by an unknown Christian writer named N.W. Clerk. It was a series of meditations following the death of his wife. In the opening pages, he wrote the following, meanwhile, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights on in the windows. 
It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? He then goes on to say, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God is really like. Shortly after the book's publication, a reviewer revealed that the book had been written under pen name. The real author was C.S. Lewis. The book, A Grief Observed, it became one of his best known and most read works of nonfiction. By pulling back the curtain on suffering, Lewis exposed the fragility of sentimental Christianity and the pointlessness of a half-hearted kind of spirituality. And he laid bare, he laid bare the desperate existential need we have for salvation through Jesus Christ. He also made people very uncomfortable by asking hard questions and not rushing to answer them. The book of Ecclesiastes does the same thing. I hope you'll turn to chapter one with me. You can find it on page 553 of the Red Bibles. And the book begins with the briefest of introductions, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The author identifies himself, but he doesn't give a name. He's the king. In this instance, however, he chooses to write not as king, but as a teacher or preacher. As we learn more about this preacher king, it seems clear that it must be Solomon, the famed son of David, who was the wealthiest and wisest king ever to reign over Israel. Nonetheless, though, he refrains from giving us his name, which raises questions as to who the author might really be. At the end of the day, I don't think it really matters who wrote Ecclesiastes. If it wasn't Solomon, then it seems to be someone writing on his behalf and from his perspective. I tend to think that it probably was Solomon, though I'll refer to the author as the preacher, which is his chosen self-designation. What matters most, what matters most is what he has to say. And the essence of that, he drops on us like a bomb in verse two. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So it's a wonderfully lighthearted beginning, isn't it? The Hebrew word translated vanity is hevel. Its most basic meaning is vapor or breath. It refers to something without substance or duration, something that you grasp for only to find that it's disappeared, like grabbing a cloud. The word can indicate futility or meaninglessness or absurdity, and it's the word that the preacher uses to sum up the meaning of life. Now, at this point, he's simply making a dramatic claim, but it is one that he is going to back up in the chapters to come. Well, after that dramatic opening, the preacher poses a question, and it's this question that is going to animate the rest of the book. Verse three, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If everything is vapid and meaningless, then what do we accomplish with the lives that we live? What's the point? What can we gain? In asking this, the 
question, the preacher also indicates how he plans to answer it. So listen again to how he asks it. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So that last phrase is essential for understanding Ecclesiastes. It comes up three times in this opening chapter, and it'll appear nearly 30 times in the 12 chapters of the book. Under the sun refers to the visible world, to all that we see and all that we experience. It's a way of speaking about life and existence that puts this world and these lives of ours at the center and as the source of all meaning. And so we're given a hint here at the outset of what the preacher believes and what he's up to in this little book of wisdom. He's going to talk about life as if this is all there is. He's going to search for meaning as if there may not be a God. He's going to evaluate all of existence using only what we know under the sun. And we don't yet know why or to what end he'll do this. All we know thus far is that according to the preacher, life under the sun, taken on its own terms, is meaningless. He spends the next eight verses explaining why. So verses four to seven. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So the preacher takes a look at at the natural world and he discovers that everything is set on repeat. Generations come and go. They're here and then they're gone. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west and rises and sets again. The wind blows north and south and goes around and blows again and again. Endless circular repetition is the hallmark of daily experience. Then there's the futility of streams and rivers. Endlessly flowing, but never filling the sea. It's like the labor of human beings. Always working, but never ultimately fulfilled. Life is repetitive and futile. And the preacher goes on in verse 8 to describe the impact of living under this reality. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it's said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Exhaustion. A lack of satisfaction that turns into an inability to be satisfied at all. A realization that with the passage of time comes the loss of memory. No one's going to remember you, he's saying. Of course, new things will appear, but if the essence of life never really changes, how can we say that anything is truly new? Man, the preacher is just dancing along the edge of depression here. At least it seems that way, right? He's constantly weary. He's never satisfied. And we may be tempted to write him off as a crank at this point. But he goes on to give us his credentials as an inducement to stick with him. So verse 12, 
I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So this is a man apparently nearing the end of his life, and he is looking back over what anyone else would say has been an incredibly successful career and a life of deep study. He has earned the right to be heard. But all he can say at this point is that life is vain. There's a crookedness to the world that cannot be straightened by anything in the world. There are two little things to notice here. And the first is a hint of God. So in verse 13, the preacher acknowledges that there is a God. This means that there must be someone or something that exists beyond the sun. But life as we know it is lived under the sun. And that's the preacher's focus. Now there's also a hint of the uniqueness of humankind. It's only the children of man who've been given the unhappy business of finding meaning. No other animal carries this burden or this potential. So, so we have a hint of hope and we have a whiff of dignity, but that's all. And the preacher continues in verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much, much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Worldly wisdom a lifetime of experience, astonishing success, the wealth of a kingdom, everything leads to sorrow. What is going on in this book and why is it in our Bibles? I just have to say, I've been sort of immersed myself in Ecclesiastes for the last few months and I love it. Ecclesiastes is a chronicle representing man's best attempt to extract meaning and purpose and fulfillment out of this world apart from the presence of God. Now God's there in the background to be sure and we're given glimpses of his purposes throughout the text but it's not until the very end in chapter 12 that the author truly lets him in and instructs us accordingly. Now prior to that crucial moment the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to expose our every attempt to make sense of life as a fool's errand. The preacher will take aim at wealth, pleasure, creativity, hard work, uh, the search for knowledge, and even good works. And he will crush them under this relentless refrain, vanity, it's all vanity. For when we set out to find meaning, pleasure, and purpose under the sun, the only thing that we're guaranteed is death. 
So at its core, Ecclesiastes is intended to be a work of deconstruction. The author probes relentlessly into the promises that life makes us, and he comes up empty. He pursues one potential path after another, only to discover that each ends in death. And he does so, he does so because he wants us to feel the ache for something more. He wants to destroy the myth of human progress and expose the emptiness of secularism. He also wants to stamp out lazy, half-hearted religion that tries to have it all with a little bit of God on the side. He wants to undermine every one of our false hopes. At the same time, with his litany of wrongs and his cry of complaint, the preacher gives us permission to voice our own aches. So he creates space for us to relate to his grief and his sorrow and his dancing along the edge of depression. He fearlessly describes just how hard life is in this world because he wants us to be honest as well. Because if we're never honest about how hard life can be, we may never really turn to God with the kind of absolute abandon that we actually need to make it through this world of vanity. So some of us, we read chapter one, and we're like, we want to get to Jesus right away. We want to point to God the creator and all the good things of the world. But the author's not ready. He wants us to feel our need. He wants us to be honest about what the world offers us so that when we do finally turn to Jesus, we understand why and what he saves us from. Ecclesiastes ultimately acts as an apology for faith by pointing out the grimness of life apart from God. This is where we're gonna be the next few weeks. And as we spend some time in Ecclesiastes, I want to invite you to do a few things. First, I wanna invite you to be honest. Life is hard. And life is hard even for those who seem most privileged and most protected. So often, life doesn't make sense. I want you to be willing to enter into the discomfort of this book and to be honest about your own sorrows and your own sufferings. Second, I want to invite you to be open. Be open. Be open to having your false hopes and idols exposed. So one of the reasons, one of the core reasons life is hard is because we try to extract meaning from empty things. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the ultimate emptiness of pleasure, wealth, and work. Now, I can virtually guarantee that one of these is your weak spot. And I want to encourage you to be open to a spiritual punch in the gut. Let God expose you and your false hopes. Be honest, be open. Third, I want to invite you to be attentive. So your life isn't the only one that's hard. Everyone you know lives under the sun. Some realize that there's life and meaning found over the horizon and in the hands of our creator, but most don't. 
This means that, that most of the people around you are stuck in the loop of meaninglessness so painfully described in chapter one. The problem is that they don't know it's a loop. They think that if they try hard enough or find the right medication or start doing meditation or meet the right man or make enough money, then they can get off the unhappy train. But they can't and they won't unless someone like you can ride with them for a while and help them get off. So when you encounter stressed out, anxious, unhappy, and unkind people in the days ahead, I want you to see their suffering that lies behind it. And I, I want you to allow your heart to be tender to them. Because all of these things, they're just different expressions of people's wrestling with life under the sun. One of the lessons we learned from Ecclesiastes is that we don't get to escape the suffering of this world. We don't get a pass on life under the sun. We too suffer, but we suffer in good company because we suffer with the Son of God himself. So remember, in order to redeem us from this broken, vain world, God didn't simply pluck us up and carry us away. He came and entered into it. He lived under the sun and he suffered under the sun. He shared life under the sun with us. And then he ultimately endured the greatest suffering of all on the cross. But after that suffering, he rose from the dead. He cut a new path from this world to the next. He stepped beyond the sun, and from the throne of heaven, he beckons us to join him. So on the night before he died, one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples was this. He said, I've said all these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The world's full of trouble and tribulation. But Jesus has overcome the world and he promises to lead us through it. So as we walk through Ecclesiastes, I hope that you'll be honest in a new way about the futility of so much of life and as a result, put your hope more firmly than ever in the Son of God who suffered with us and for us, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ache for you. And we give you praise that you ached with us. As we explore the vanity of life, the suffering of the world, may your suffering, salvation be magnified before us. May we be honest, may we be open, may we be attentive. May we receive and share your grace for the glory of your name. Amen.